the rock. The picture that I've been showing you for a number of weeks and even a couple months, this rock of Gibraltar, we must be anchored to a rock or our life will be buffeted by the winds, by the rain. And the rock is the words of Jesus put into practice. Matthew 7.24 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on rock. Is your house built on the rock? Is your life built on the rock, the words of Jesus put into practice? And now today, we explore again words of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word again, we again ask that you would be here. We To be able to understand your word, we must hear from you. We must have you interpret, Holy Spirit. We know that your word is inspired, and now we we ask for the inspiration of our understanding of it. We ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that we might hear from you. God, speak. Speak, we desire to hear from you. Amen. Last Sunday, I issued a challenge to you. In the face of a rapidly changing culture, what is the appropriate response of followers of Jesus Christ? Now, I do believe, as I said last week, that there are three possible responses to the changing culture around us. We can get angry. That's the first possible response. We can withdraw. We can make a decision to just close our eyes and plug our ears and hide together. Or we can choose to engage the culture with the truth of Jesus Christ in love. As I challenged you last week, I desire that our church will engage. But I also recognize that there is hurt and there is anger because so much has changed. But we cannot let that hurt and anger affect our witness for Jesus Christ. We cannot let that hurt and anger affect the ability for us to engage and make a difference. We we can't require people or force people to believe in Jesus, but we can speak the truth and let God be responsible for what happens next. We must be a people that does that. So, I suggested to you that we must engage, but of course, a question remains. How do we engage? The answer, I would submit to you, is as simple as listening to the words of Jesus and putting them into practice. Our culture is in the process of disconnecting its anchor from the rock. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that our entire culture has decided to pull up anchor? (laughs) That's what's happening right now. Our culture has decided to pull up anchor away from Jesus Christ, away from the words of Jesus put into practice. And what has resulted and what is currently resulting is that the ship is being tossed by the waves. That's what is happening in our country, in our culture today. 
The ship, our culture, is being tossed by the waves because we no longer are anchored to the words of Jesus. We are no longer putting them into practice. We can live as individuals who know the words of Jesus and put them into practice. Sounds simple. And yet, well, it is simple. (laughs) But it is also difficult. Because living this way involves, and this is a word we don't like, submission. It involves submission to Jesus Christ. It involves submitting our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It means when we say that Jesus is Lord, we don't just mean it, we live it. You can't not do that. They have to go together. Knowing Jesus and following Jesus, that's what it means. It requires submission. The passage we're going to study today might be the simplest words of Jesus to understand, yet at the same time, the most difficult words of Jesus to put into practice. I want you to know that when I preach to you, I am humbled, but today especially, I am humbled to speak the words of Jesus that I'm going to say today. I do not feel worthy to stand up here and say what I'm going to say next. I want you to know that I feel like I belong where you are. I want to be at the feet of Jesus with you. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. The last message on the Sermon on the Mount that I preached to you was over a month ago on December 4th. I don't know about you, but that month went by very quickly. (laughs) If you were here on that Sunday a month ago, you may remember that it was the last Sunday in which the children were out of the sanctuary because they were doing practice for the children's program. Do you remember that? And that gave me the opportunity to speak freely to the adults in the room. That, do you remember? Because we talked about adultery and divorce, okay? And um, we spoke openly about that subject. You might remember. If you happen to miss that, I encourage you to go on YouTube and, and watch it. The section we are in today is a continuation of this section on the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember that this section actually has a name. It's called the antithesis. That sounds like a fancy word. This section of the Sermon on the Mount that is called the antithesis starts in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It's on the screen here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This section that we are talking about today is part of that. That launches the antithesis. And the reason it's called the antithesis is because there are six things in this, six sections, I should say, in which Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And so Jesus is giving six examples of Old Testament law that he says, I am fulfilling these. You have heard it said, but I say to you. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is the antithesis. Jesus 
is fulfilling the law. The six sections, Jesus talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for eye, and love for enemies. Today, we're going to try to study the last three. If I sense that you're uneasy, I'll cut it short. Fair enough. Is anybody going to wave their hand at me if, that, if you want that? I'm okay with that. All right. Let's begin with oaths. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath. But keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Well, here's the question that we always need to be asking when reading the words of Jesus. Here it is. Ready for this? What does it mean to put these words into practice? What does it mean to put these words into practice? Well, first of all, I want to clear something up. Uh, our modern English language, uh, we use the word swear in a way that is different than what Jesus is talking about right here. Um, we use the word like, hey, don't swear, right? But what we're talking about when we say don't swear is don't use profane language. That's what we usually talk about when we say don't swear. Now, the New Testament does speak against using profane language. Ephesians 4, 29 do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their deeds, that it may benefit those who listen. And only a few verses later, again in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. When I was a construction worker, I thought about quoting that verse about 800 times a day. I would, did not use obscenity, but I was surrounded by so much of it that I felt like I was swimming in sewage. Any other construction workers with me? Been there, done that? It's a little rough. It's a little rough, right? Now, although the Bible speaks about not using profane language, when Jesus is talking about swearing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking about that kind of swearing, okay? So we're not talking about using bad words. Well, what are we talking about? Let's read it again. Look again, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Jesus is talking about making oaths. He's talking about making oaths. And he's quoting a number of Old Testament passages that address making oaths. So I'm just going to give you two really small examples. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, 
He must not break his word, but must do everything he said. And Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay for it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Now, here is a big question then. If the Old Testament gives guidelines for making oaths, then why does Jesus say, don't make oaths? Is that a reasonable question to ask? I think it is. Let me give you an example of what I'm pretty sure Jesus is getting at here. When I was a youth pastor, this was about 15 years ago, I had a young man in my youth group who came from a bit of a rough family. And he had just accepted Jesus, and he really wanted to live a life worthy of Christ. But he was kind of a work in progress, right? Uh, he he kind of got into a strange habit when he talked. He started saying a little phrase when he would talk. It went something like this, okay? He, he said, I'm not going to lie, I really loved that movie. Right? But he started saying, I'm not going to lie, before he said a whole bunch of stuff. Like, I'm not going to lie, Pastor Jason, that was the best sermon that you've ever preached. So that means every other time you've told me that, you were lying. Right? Why do you have to qualify something you say with, I'm not going to lie? Here's the question that Jesus is presenting to us. You ready for this? What kind of people are citizens of God's kingdom? Are they the kind of people that have to take an oath in order to be trustworthy in what they say? You see, the law of Moses, which I just quoted in Numbers and Deuteronomy, the law of Moses was given by God to keep guardrails around a people who really needed the guardrails. Oaths were a way of ensuring that people would follow through on what they said, like legally. But Jesus is saying that kingdom of God people are to be people of their word without the need for oath making. In other words, we are to be people who speak the truth and who always speak the truth. In fact, we should be known as people who keep our word. If we say it, we will do it. That's the kind of people we are supposed to be. <clears throat> we are supposed to be people who, when we shake on it, the shake itself is a binding contract. That's who we are supposed to be. Why? Because that is the kind of people we are. Kingdom of God people are trustworthy. We are people of our word, no oath needed. We know that this idea had force in the early church. Just one example occurs near the end of the book of James. James 5.2. Above all, my brothers, do not swear. 
Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Notice he's quoting Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do you see that? James is literally quoting this passage. This idea of not taking oaths, this idea, more importantly, of being trustworthy in what we say without an oath is who we are to be. If people know us, they should know us as people who do what we say. Now, that was the easy one today. The next two are a little trickier. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now this is about a whole lot more than just borrowing your neighbor a chainsaw. This is about a whole lot more than that. So, here's the question we have to ask when we read the words of Jesus. What does it mean to put these words of Jesus into practice? Well, to understand that, let's go back and look at the Old Testament law that Jesus was quoting. Leviticus 24, 19 through 21. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. Again, I need to remind you that the Old Testament law of Moses was put in place to set up boundaries around a rebellious people. Regarding this particular law, this stipulation, it was meant to limit punishment so that the punishment was proportional to the crime. In other words, if someone broke someone else's arm, the punishment should not be execution. Do you see that? The purpose of this law was to limit the punishment so that the punishment was not greater than it should be. This law prevented punishments from exceeding the crimes. But Jesus takes this in a different direction. You see, Jesus wanted people to understand that God was not concerned only with outward obedience. God is concerned with inner heart change. In other words, God is concerned with our intent as much or even more than our actions. That's worth saying again. I need you to hear that. Followers of Christ, listen to this from Jesus. God cares about the intent of your heart as much as the action of your hands. Did you hear it? God cares about the intent of your heart as much as the action of your hands. Now, our discussion about adultery a month ago, even if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart, you see? This is a consistent theme that Jesus is getting across. God cares about the intent of your heart. 
Now, this is a key point in understanding how to live the words of Jesus. Remember, the words of Jesus put into practice. A key understanding of that is that you must understand the intent of your heart matters as much as the action. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were obsessively concerned with being outwardly obedient to the law. But they gave no consideration to their inner motivation. Jesus is saying with crystal clarity that God does not want outward obedience if our inner attitude is sinful. Did you hear that? God does not want outward obedience if our inner is sinful. In fact, you can make a case that this entire uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount is making the point I just made. The Jews had focused completely on outward obedience to the law with a complete lack of proper inner obedience. What we think matters. Even if your actions are correct. Kingdom of God people have correct inner motivation. And then their outward actions flow naturally from the correct inner motivation. Did you hear that? That's what Jesus is saying. You get the heart right on the inside, and then the outer actions happen naturally. It does not work the other way around. And I have heard preachers preach the other way, and it bothers me. Because they'll say something like this. Just fake it till you get it. Fake it till you make it. Does that look like what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount? He is saying, inner motivation matters, and it is from the inner motivation that the actions follow. So in this passage, what should our inner motivations be? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Citizens of the kingdom should not need to be restrained from overpunishment. On the contrary, we should instead view situations in a completely different perspective. And what perspective is that? God's perspective. You see, there's a concept at work here that is truly profound. 
kingdom of God people are not the kind of people who seek personal retribution. We do not seek revenge. In fact, we seek the opposite of revenge according to Jesus. We are to seek the well-being of those to whom we might be legally entitled to retribution. The only way that's possible, because you might be sitting there thinking, that's not possible. You're right. It's not possible by yourself. It's only possible if we keep God's perspective in mind as we deal with people that hurt us. Think about it this way. I got a story. You maybe have heard this before, but it's worth saying again. Imagine. The roads are icy and visibility is limited. Is that hard to imagine? (laughs) So imagine the roads are icy and the visibility is limited and you are driving cautiously with your family in the car. You recognize the dangerous road conditions. And then, out of nowhere, in your rearview mirror, you see someone come bursting up on your bumper. Right? Right? And they ride your bumper. They're tailgating you. And you know if you have to stop because a deer jumps up in front of you, they're going to rear-end you. Mmm. Mmm. And then, at the first available moment, they go bursting out around you to pass you on that two-lane highway. And they're, they're fishtailing a little bit because it's slippery. And they're going past you. And when they go past you, now listen to me and say it right away. What do you do when they go by? Do you make a gesture? Do you, if you don't make a gesture because you're holy, do you look at them and try to make eye contact? And when you do, what are your eyes saying? Yeah. See you in the ditch later, buddy. Right. What are you thinking in your mind? Now, again, as a former construction worker, I can tell you that taking every thought captive to Christ is challenging in that moment. Because all of those words that I was swimming in as a construction worker, man, they are right there. Like if only the Bible could jump into my mind as quickly as those words. Right? Am I? Come on. Some of you have been construction. Some of you are construction workers, Right? Where are you at in that? Will anger be with you? In fact, how long are you going to be angry after that? How many miles are you still going to be stewing? And then just a few miles up the road, you're still just kind of talking under your breath. And you drive by the hospital, hospital and there in the emergency room, drive up lane is the car that passed you. everything changes. Why? Why? Because your perspective has changed. Not because you did anything different. Not because they did anything different. Not even because any of the actions are different in any way. The only thing that has changed is you see the situation from a different perspective that you didn't see it from before. Jesus is challenging 
the citizens of the kingdom of God, to see people from God's perspective, not from your own. And what that means is, if someone wrongs you, you're not out for personal vengeance. You're not out to get retribution. And in fact, and this is a tough one, you're not even out to make things right because your rights have been violated. But you see God's perspective. You recognize the image of God in that person that has wronged you. And then you respond from that. Kingdom of God people are not out for personal retribution. We are not motivated by protecting our rights. Instead, we are to be motivated by helping people find eternal peace with God. Is that our motivation? Is that the first thing that jumps into your heart when you are faced with a situation where someone has violated your rights? Where someone has put you in danger? My family will tell you, I get mad when people drive by me that way. And so I risk being a hypocrite standing up here by saying what I've just said. I have to work at taking thoughts like that captive to Christ. I have to remind myself daily, Jesus died for that person. I have to remind myself that my rights, the right I have is to eternal separation from God in hell. That's what I have earned. But by the grace of God, I've been given the chance for eternal life. And everything that I do for that person that has just wronged me, if it comes from that perspective, everything changes. Now, do not hear me say that I am against justice. I am not against justice, and neither is Jesus Christ. James 4, 2, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. So what is Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount? When he says, you've heard it said eye for eye, but I tell you. He's saying there is no place in the life of a follower of Jesus for personal retribution. Do you hear that? It is God's to judge. It is God's to bring punishment for sin. And then, and this is where it gets tricky. Romans 12, 19. See that? Do you know what happens only two verses later? It's a section of Scripture that lots of people don't like. Romans 13, verse 1. 
says, submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because God has ordained the government to carry out justice. Do you understand what I'm saying? Christians do not seek retribution personally. But that doesn't mean we are not people of justice. Justice happens by God and by God's ordained authority. That authority is the government. Police officers. The military. You understand how we've gotten this whole idea of personal retribution really mixed up. We've decided that the most important thing that we need to do is protect our individual rights. Jesus says nothing of the kind. In fact, you want to know what Jesus did regarding personal rights? I can show you a picture. You ready? It's in the corner. That's Jesus' definitive statement on personal rights. He gave them up for us. If anybody deserved not to be executed for sin, it's Jesus Christ. He did not sin. He gave up what he deserved so that we might live. And now when you read eye for eye, you recognize the way of Jesus Christ and the way of Jesus Christ's people should not be such that we have to be limited in carrying out personal judgment. It's the opposite. We are people who will go the extra mile, who when we are sued, will give more than what they're asking. Bottom line, kingdom of God citizens are to have an inner motivation of eternal perspective for others. Did you hear that? Our inner motivation is the eternal perspective of everybody that we come in contact with. And this includes not seeking personal retribution when people wrong us. God will bring justice. And God has instituted authority structures for justice to be meted out. Our job is to be motivated by an inner care for people, even people who harm us. Now, obviously, there's more I could say about this. Because the question of what happens when the government goes off the rails is a question that has to be considered. I agree with you, but it goes beyond the scope of what Jesus is saying here. Perhaps a conversation for another day. But I would, I would say this. Can you just imagine a world in which Christians actually lived this way? What if Christians actually lived this way? What would it look like? What would it look like if every interaction that the people of God had with other people had God's perspective, the eternal perspective in mind, instead of our own personal rights and personal retribution? Everything would be different. The words of Jesus 
put into practice. And now, this last one, it seems like it would be long, but it's the same as what we just said. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of our Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Leviticus 19.18 is one of the passages Jesus is quoting here. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And yet Jesus now comes and he completely turns on its head what the Jewish people of his day were calling a neighbor. Jesus is saying that your fellow Jews are not only your neighbors, but in fact, everyone who shares the image of God is your neighbor. And that includes your enemies. Because your enemies, as much as you don't like them, as much as you dislike what they say and what they do, have the image of God in them. What does it mean to put these words of Jesus into practice? (laughs) This is a a passage in which knowing what it means is really simple. Putting it into practice is really hard. Again, it's really the same thing as the last one. Do you have God's perspective on your enemies? Do you see them for children of God in danger of eternal damnation? Or do you just see them as someone that deserves hell? Can I remind you of God's perspective? 2 Peter 3.9, an incredibly important verse. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. God isn't sending anyone to hell. He wants them to repent. People do go to hell, however. Why? Because they don't. See that? But it's God's desire that everyone would repent. What ought our inner motivation be regarding our enemies? Love, and love means valuing their soul. We value the fact that our enemies are lost and we desire for them to be found by God and for them to find God. We have many enemies today church. So how do we do this? How do we love our enemies? Well, some people believe that loving our enemies means just not disagreeing with them. So we need to just tolerate them and then pray for them uh, behind the scenes. Because you don't want them to, to get offended by 
by what Jesus says, that, that's the way the, the logical argument goes. Yeah, I really disagree with that. Like, a lot. Why? Because that's not what Jesus did. We are to speak the truth in love to people that most would consider our enemies. So what does that mean? It means a whole lot of stuff, doesn't it? Think about what's going on in our culture regarding sexuality, regarding gender. Do we just step back and say, we're just going to tolerate? Maybe we should just withdraw into a little club. Or do we risk standing up and saying what Jesus says? He's the truth. What do we say about marriage? Well, what did Jesus say about marriage? For this reason, a man and wife will be united. A man and a woman will be united, and the two shall become one flesh. It's crazy that we are not willing to stand up and say the truth in love because we have God's perspective. Now, a whole bunch of our country is, uh, they've, the best way I could put it is just what I've said. They have disconnected their anchor from the rock. If you disconnect your anchor from the rock, you can say anything you want, can't you? So if you get back to the rock, what does Jesus say? Well, I can remind you of something Jesus says. God loved the world so much, he gave his only son. He gave. And whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. That's something God says. You know what else God says? Through his word in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Our interactions with our enemies ought to always be from a position of recognizing that if we got what we deserved, we would go to hell as well. But we have been given grace, and thus it is grace that we are to also give. But grace does not mean tolerance for inconsistency. Grace does not mean tolerance for what is not the truth of the words of Jesus. That's not grace. We speak the truth. What is the truth? The words of Jesus put in to practice. And the last verse, to sum up this entire section of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> entire sermon in that one verse. In fact, an entire theology. In fact, an entire movement of Christianity is on that verse right there. I'm not going to go there. I've got this much of my notes left. But why would Jesus say this as the concluding statement of the antithesis? I would like to say what John Wesley said about that verse. God would not tell us or expect us to do something and fail to give us the power to do it. When it comes to the six things we've talked about, murder and adultery and divorce, 
oaths, eye for eye, loving your enemy. God will give us the power to actually do it. We have available to us the Holy Spirit to actually live in the way that Jesus has said in these verses. We actually can have God's perspective. We actually can be people like this. We actually can be kingdom of God people in this world. And that is the only hope that the United States of America has. Is the people of God actually being citizens of the kingdom. That's it. There's no political solution to what we've got right now. There isn't. There isn't a political solution. There is only the people of God actually being the people of God. Now, that doesn't mean that politics aren't part of the solution. They are. But they don't start there. It starts with us living out the Sermon on the Mount, living out the words of Jesus. I'm going to pray to conclude our time together today. And what I'm going to pray for is that we would receive the Holy Spirit to have the power to live this way. Because we can't do it without that. Would you stand and pray with me as we invite the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, I am and I believe we are humbled by your words. Jesus, we are humbled by your words in this passage. It doesn't seem like it's even possible to do this. And yet, how could you command us to do something and not give us the power to do it? Only a tyrant would ask something like that, and you are not a tyrant. You desire that we would all come to repentance, that we would all turn from our sin and go toward you, that you desire that we would be holy, that we would be perfect, that we would be complete in you. You desire that this way you've told us to live is attainable because of your power inside us. And so in this moment, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come upon this church That you would come inside us as individuals, as families, as people that are bound together at New Life Church of God. That we would receive your power to actually live this way. To actually be able to see people the way you see them. To actually be able to recognize when those thoughts of personal revenge creep into us. That we could take those thoughts captive and replace them with your perspective and your love. That only happens if you're among us, Holy Spirit. If you're in us, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please come into this church. Not the building, the people. Come into us, God. Give us the power to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.